Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify global leaders who are creating impact. We humanize our role models and curate a culture of vulnerability and belonging. This is a show designed to innovate, empower, and ignite. I'm your host, Lisa May Brunson. Innovators, it's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. Today's guest is Trisha Walsh. Trisha is currently VP of Engineering, Security Engineering and Technology at Yelp. This organization includes the eternal IT end user support, technology sourcing, procurement, people technology, and security engineering. Trisha's role includes thought leadership and strategy for these teams in support of Yelp's employees and lines of business globally, ensuring continuous improvement by monitoring and measuring internal applications that technology teams utilize to improve service quality and evaluating metrics for service level objectives across operations. Trisha is also a people leader with distributed teams in Canada, England, Germany, and the U.S., Additionally, she serves on the board of directors for the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland, California. Trisha has previously been employed at Gap Inc., where she managed global services strategy for IT operations. Ms. Walsh also holds a BA in degree in sociology social work from Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, North Adams, and an MSBA in Computer Information Systems Quantitative Business Methods from California State University, East Bay. She also lives in Berkeley, California with her wife. Welcome to the show, Trisha. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa May. So, Trisha, let's take it back to the beginning. Can you tell us where you came from and what kind of childhood did you have? Yeah, so originally I'm from Massachusetts, uh, grew up there, was born in Cambridge, but lived in a small town called Franklin, about 9,000 folks when I was growing up there. I'm the fifth of six children. Ooh, um, I'm the Irish oldest Catholic. of six. Oh, you are? <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Large brood. Get your bossy. <laughs> <laughs> I am, <laughs> or I used to be. <laughs> you had to be, you had to be. Yeah, so I grew up on the other end, the younger end. And uh, my twin brother and I were fifth and sixth, so I still consider myself the youngest because it was both of us. Oh, wow. You So you're a twin. <laughs> mm, yes. Two sets of twins in my family. Oh, my gosh. That is super awesome. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It really was. It was instant companionship, right? So I always had a play buddy my age. But yeah, so, you know, I say Irish Catholic because that really informed, you know, my early years and the things that were important in my family. My parents both being Catholic, being raised, and then their Irish heritage. We have Irish heritage on both sides of my family, even though we've been in the States for a long time. But yeah, I went to school there, grade school, uh, did my undergraduate in Massachusetts, as you read in my bio, and then came to California in my late 20s. That's amazing. I mean, I think, you know, definitely coming from, you know, being the oldest of six kids myself, well, five growing up, you know, you're never alone. You've got lots of siblings to contend with. Like, how was it being part of a large family? Like, I imagine that must have also helped shape who you would later become. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. The one time I lived by myself, I had the TV going the whole time. The absolute quiet, I I could not stand it. I didn't know how to live in absolute quiet. I wasn't watching the TV, but it was just on in the background. Have busy noise. So definitely, definitely part of my heritage. And other than that, you know, I feel like because there were six of us and we had to get along in so many ways, I had to learn a lot of those conflict resolution skills because these were people I was living with. And if we didn't get along, it was going to be really hard. So with two parents and six kids in a small house, you know, eight is a lot of people. So I do think that it had a lot to do with being to get along with folks. And that's definitely been a through line through my growing up time and through my career. Yeah. I mean, you know, for myself, I 
definitely, I took the opposite <laughs> road. I valued silence. So like, as soon as I got by myself, I was like, no noise. <laughs> but I don't, I definitely get it because you do become preconditioned to having activity and being surrounded by people and conversations. So what do you right, feel? Right. And oh, go ahead. earth order matters, right? So you probably had quiet and it got noisier and noisier <laughs> and noisier. I was born into the noise, right? Yeah, you didn't, you were not alpha. You were just, <laughs> that is so funny. What do you feel were some of your earliest influences that would later lead you down like your career path or your educational journey? Mm, interesting. Um, and I do think early education, there were some indicators that definitely made sense later. I didn't understand them at the time, but certainly math was very comfortable class for me. I always did well in math and science. I wasn't as strong in the language arts, you know, the social sciences. Um, when I was a kid, history, English, whatever, much better in math and science. And so that showed up in my master's degree program, quantitative business methods. With the quantitative business methods, it was very much a math focus and, and it made me really comfortable. And it's why I chose that program. I also had influences of math teachers. Uh, there was a particular math teacher in high school. When I graduated high school, I didn't go to college right away because I didn't know how. I grew up pretty poor, very humbly, and I didn't know how to apply for college. I didn't know how to go to college. I didn't know how to pay for college. I didn't know how to do any of that. And I also didn't know how to ask for help when I was a teenager. So I didn't go. And I was at an antique stop that my math teacher owned. She and her husband ran it on the weekend. She asked me one day why I wasn't in college because I had been in her math classes. And I told her, I don't have any money to go to college. And she helped me connect back to the counseling department in my high school to meet with the financial aid folks to learn how to do an application and submit all that and submit the federal financial aid package, all that stuff. And I was off to school a year later. You know, I find that super fascinating because I also grew up incredibly poor. I'm talking homeless at points, um, just no access to anything. I mean, there, I, I don't even know if I even like thought in my, you know, teenage years that college, you know, or higher education was even an option for myself because it just, mm -hmm. it's not in the conversations that you're having with your peers. It's not in the conversations you're having at home. And, you know, at that time, at least for myself, my teachers weren't saying like, hey, these are options for you. Go for this. So I'm grateful to hear that somebody stepped up to kind of show you the way. But I also find it interesting that, you know, when you say, I didn't know how to do these things. And it sounds, it might sound strange to people, but it's actually true. I can relate. Like I had no idea unless somebody took me by the hand and said, here are the programs for you. Here is how you apply. Here is how you have access to the funding to get you into the doors. I went through the same thing. So I appreciate you sharing that experience and how many people can relate to that, especially those right. with low income. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I saw my peers like getting letters. I didn't know how they got those letters. I didn't know there was a whole application process to like go to college and I took my PSATs and the SATs because I thought I was on a college path, but I had no idea how to do any of it until literally I was shown the way. So it's a really good point. It's not accessible if you don't know how to apply. Yeah. And you're not exposed to those kinds of conversations, which, you know, unfortunately, women, people of color, underserved communities, right. like these are the these are the humans that are not having that access to higher education or even the pathways to be interested in higher education. Because I will say that I never was interested. Like I was like, oh, whatever, like, let me just get out there and go join the world. But it never occurred to me that my natural passion for science at the time, I was obsessed with science. I wanted to be an astronaut. Like, 
if I had been shown the way and I had a science teacher that said, hey, Lisa May, like fill out these applications. Maybe you can go be an astronaut. Who knows? I could be one of the first people on Mars right now. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. It takes that one person. That's right. That's right. It really does. So I guess that's a form of mentorship, right? So like what other mentors have you had along the way and how important do you feel that sponsoring and mentorship for someone's career is, how important is that for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think in college in particular, I really started to see mentorship in action, whether it was folks that had gone before me in classes or programs that I was participating in. I worked in things like the orientation program for the next incoming freshman class to come up for those two days to learn the campus and register for classes and all the like. And so I really started getting plugged in with some of the administration offices of the campus and did programs. We had an IEP program, an individual enrichment program, and it was specifically for folks that had a rougher path getting to college, whether it was poverty, people of color from inner city, um, et cetera, et cetera, but really helping to bridge that gap and get them to college and help them succeed throughout the year and not just get them in the door, but offer them support all school year long. And I became a resident advisor my senior year, you know, ran a floor and uh, was the person that was the contact for all these students that lived on the floor. And all along that way, it was folks that had gone before me or some of the adults working in these programs as well, really helping to shape my skills and give me that coaching to say, you're good at this, but you could improve in this. And that's absolute mentorship. How I've seen that in my career is there have been bosses, you know, managers from time to time that saw something in me that I didn't yet I didn't know I could grow into that potential role or or become a people manager until someone pointed out to me it should be something I would think about. Nope. When they pointed out to me that it was something I should be thinking about as a growth opportunity in my career. And I'm really grateful for those kinds of conversations because it wasn't pigeonholing. It was really an opportunity. And this is a chance and this is something you could try and I think you'd be good at it. And just that belief, you know, for a moment that I could do something differently. It's planting seeds and then sparking ideas and possibilities, which I think is so vital for us to grow as humans. You know, as we talked about, you hold a BA degree in sociology and social work, as well as an MSBA in computer information systems and quantitative business methods. And these are two totally different like areas, right? Like, so how did you decide your educational trajectory and how has that led to what would become your career path? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. When I was working on my undergraduate, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, you know, because it was enough of a hurdle for me to get to college. So I declared no major. And luckily they had a course called the Developmental Insight Growth Seminar and DIGS. And it was taught by upperclassmen. And it was, you did the Myers-Briggs and you took another type of, not personality, but sort of preferences type survey to kind of figure out what you wanted to do with your life. I eventually became one of those instructors. I taught that class my junior and senior year. But the idea was to help people figure out where their passions lie, where their strengths lie, and where their interests lie. And that's how I found sociology. I was fascinated by group dynamics. I was fascinated by people coming from poverty. I definitely felt classism and saw it alive and well. I was really curious about that. I also was really interested in the feminism side of sociology. Where do women fit in our society? Where did we fit 50 years ago? Where will we fit 50 years from now? We're half of the population and we are not half of anything other than half of the population. And so I really was interested in sociology, which led to my work in social work. I did residential treatment programs for adolescents when I first got out of college. Again, back to conflict resolution. I picked up some of that in my large family and took it into that job. It was only much later through work when I was working at Bank of America that I fell into technology. I found I could fix the fax machine when it broke back when we had fax machines, but printers and 
and people's computers. I could help them refigure out how to format something in Microsoft Word or how to get back to a program or troubleshoot a little bit. And I just sort of happened into technology. I then went to school for it. You seem to have like this theme of power of suggestion and let me try it. And okay, let me dive in. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have described myself as a curious person. But as it turns out, I'm, I'm curious. And so I just kept pursuing the next thing to see if I could figure it out. I love that. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, that is an engineering mind. Absolutely. To figure something out. I also found back to the people skills, I really liked fixing things for other people. So I could fix their program or I could fix their machine and hand it back to them. And I love that joy, that moment they're like, oh, thank you, thank you. You know, you made it work. I can get back to my job, whatever. I, I still love that, solving the problems for myself, for others, for technology, whatever. And it sounds like you can help solve things both from the human dynamic perspective as well as the machine. That's right. <laughs> Perfect marriage, the human and the machine. That's right. So what do you feel was your first big break? I think, I think back to the going to college, that was the biggest break. That really changed my ability to see myself. When I was out of high school, all I could think about was not getting on welfare. That was as far of a goal as I could see. I was going to work myself to death, potentially, as long as I didn't end up on welfare. Because there was so much shame in my family of our origin around our poverty. And it was really important for me to get out of that chain. That was really a um, heavy-weighted jacket holding us all down. And I didn't want to wear that jacket anymore. Career-wise, it was a manager. It was a manager at Bank of America that he was the one that I'm most inspired to say, saw something in me before I did. He proposed the idea that I apply for a position leading his technology group in his business unit. One of the things he said to me was, I can teach you the technology, the team will teach you how it all works, and you'll, you'll be off and running. What is really hard to teach is to be empathetic, to see that team conflict and get in on it and try to figure it out and solve it with the people. And if you can bring that part to the technology, which is a skill we can really teach, then we can really take this team forward. And that was my first big break. I really appreciate you sharing first that desire to not ever be on welfare again. I can relate. I That was like a gut punch. It's something I still wrestle with to this day. To this day, I have this fear to the point where my cupboards are full. Like they're not only full, they're overflowing. And so is my garage. My garage is filled with, and this is like not because of the pandemic. This has always been me. My freezer is packed to the gills abnormally. And like that, I mean, I know, and I'm very conscious of that. You know, I have, I, I, <laughs> I shop at Costco and I'm a single human being with a dog. There's no reason why I need to be at Costco. I'm there every week. And a lot of it though, I mean, it is like this deep-seated fear. It's something that's like programmed and imprinted on me, I think probably for the rest of my life, because when you do grow up with that extreme poverty and that shame, I mean, I remember tearing the food stamp packets and trying to not make noise. This was yeah. before the debit cards that they have now, right? This is like when you had to tear them out and people were looking at you with such disdain and you're paying for food with these like bright colored, yep. <laughs> like the most bright colors on the planet, food stamps. That was like just a mark on you. It's like a stamp that for me, just, I don't know if it'll ever wash away. So I get that work yourself to the bone mentality, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I stopped eating lunch in school because of the lunch tickets. Yeah. I, um, I didn't want to carry that yellow ticket. It was bright yellow to your point, like anything like cash. And I was ashamed of that ticket. So I just stopped eating lunch. I think there's something to be said for really thinking about like these very vital programs that need to exist. I mean, if, if we didn't have them, I wouldn't be in. But like, how can right. you sort of normalize the process and make it not feel like that 
opportunity to shame another person for what they have, right. which is why right. I'm glad that the cards came out for people. It yep, kind right. of gives it a everybody little bit. Everybody pulls out a card. Yeah, everybody pulls out a card. Right. You don't know who's next or what they're paying with. So I am grateful for that. But, you know, as you were learning and growing and gaining experiences at Gap Inc. and others, what shifted for you in terms of your career focus? How did you eventually land at Yelp? When I was um, at Bank of America, I was definitely pigeonholed in the business that I was in. So I was in corporate banking as opposed to consumer banking. And so we worked on contracts and did business with other companies. And the last 10 years I was there, I worked on federal contracts. So federal government in the U.S. And that becomes really niche. And so I would apply for jobs internally and I would, you know, get most of them. But again, it was still in that same business line. It wasn't very expansive. And banking is really highly regulated and Federal government contracts are even more regulated. So it was very constricting. In the beginning, it was great structure as I learned business and learned how to work in corporate America, but it became a stronghold. And so going to Gap changed the industry I was in. I went to retail and e-commerce, so got a chance to learn so many new things, particularly around e-commerce. So I'm really grateful for that experience. I was there about five years, and my manager in one of our one-on-ones was telling me about uh, they do an annual sort of reorg process. And she said in the next couple of months of reorg, I was probably not going to have my job the same way. This piece would go here, and this piece would go there. But she never said what they were going to put to fill my job back up with, like what things I would get as a result of this. And so I thought, do I want to wait for that destiny or should I go looking? And I went looking. Um, and that's when I saw the opportunity at Yelp. So applied, did the interview process. It was the fastest interview process I'd ever been in my life. So I was kind of heady about moving, but it was felt right. It felt right the whole time. And, you know, that was a little over five years ago and there is no looking back. It has been an amazing opportunity. It is one of the most empathetic work environments I've ever been in. And my manager, all the way up to the rest of the C-suite, they are just compassionate, thoughtful leaders. And I want to work with them every day. That is just really inspiring when you finally find home, especially Mm -hmm. in the corporate environment. So I'm really excited to hear how much you've really come into your own with this company I know you co-lead Yelp's employee resource group, Awesome Women in Engineering, otherwise known as AWE, which I love. What are some of the initiatives you have launched in that group? Yes. So we have multiple programs. We have mentoring and we have networking. We do a food for thought for open discussions and safe spaces. We have public speaking prep So folks can workshop with us as they're working through either at a conference or a big meeting they have coming up. We offer them pointers and tips um, and encourage and love them through it. So that's the piece. Uh, But one of the pieces that we were able to launch in one of the programs that I was running was an allyship program. So one of our primary purposes with the allyship program is to connect with other people at the company and particularly with the other employee resource groups. So in engineering, we also have Color Coded, which is our people of color engineering group. We also have Asian Pacific Islanders. And so our allyship program is meant to help bridge all of the different intersectionalities because some of us identify in more than one group. I also identify as a lesbian, so I'm part of Outburst in our LGBTQ plus organization. And so connecting everyone as well as improving our ally skills. So we run ally skills workshop internally to show folks that being an ally is active. It is not standing by passively. It is an active engagement and it's important as allies to speak up at any chance we can to bring voice to the voiceless for those that are behind whether it's the conversation or the idea or uh, next feature. I'm thrilled to hear about that advocacy for allyship 
many of us do identify in so many different ways. I mean, that's actually a focus for Wonder Woman Tech 2.0, if you will. I'm really wanting to focus on identity, especially because, you know, myself, I'm multiracial, also part of the LGBTQ community and learning what that means. That's evolved, you know, in terms of my sexuality and also just culturally, like I'm Native American, Latina and African American. And that has been, it's always been ingrained in you, even from the forms you sign up for going to school, applying for a job, like it's pick a box and it's just so constrained. And so I'm in my 40s, gulp. Um, and now, and I feel like I'm just now understanding what culture and identity looks like for me and like embracing each of those elements. And so what I've learned just even in the 10 years of doing this work with Wonder Women Tech and in the DEIB space, some things that have been missing as I look at what belonging means for me, belonging means that there needs to be people around me that understands and has the skills and tools and at least the compassion to understand who I am as a person and that I am multicultural, no matter what I look like from the outside. I do have a part of my LGBTQ sexuality identity that I contend with that other people would make assumptions about as well. So I would have to say that that's probably some really important work, especially as we look ahead to what this industry, you know, is evolving into. Like, how do we create cultures of belonging? How do we create safe workspaces for all humans? What does that look like? And I think it starts with this allyship tools, you know, workshops that you're hosting. Right. And the idea being that no one has to identify all the things, because to your point, there's not enough checkboxes or only one is allowed and you're crossing out another part of your identity to pick this, right? And so, you know, gender, there shouldn't be one box for gender, right? Like all of that. And so as an active ally, always coming forward with, if someone speaks up an idea, you don't get to take it from them. It was Lisa May's idea. Lisa May, thank you so much for bringing up that idea. I appreciate you brought that up. Right. And using your name when I re-say your idea in front of others so that your name gets credit. It wasn't I. It wasn't we. It was truly Lisa May that brought up this idea and giving it to you and letting you have that space. And that sponsorship, whether you're in the room or not, right, is being able to help promote you just for your ideas. I really, really, really appreciate that. And I love that idea. That's a handy little tool that we could take with us today. (laughs) So what do you feel have been some challenges that you have faced in your role or what, how would you like to evolve moving forward? Yeah, I think some of the challenges in my role, I ponder it, you know, it's and my brain is swimming with a place where we're evaluating so far? Have we accomplished everything we wanted to do? Anything need to be reworked or working through those lessons learned, whether something didn't launch on time or it isn't quite completed yet and planning for the back half of the year. So I'm kind of swimming with projects and initiatives and, and those types of things. And so the challenge is always having enough time. That's really the greatest challenge. I'm not naive to say that I'm not challenged because I'm one of the older people at work, I'm a woman, I'm a lesbian, um, you know, like I'm not naive enough to say none of those things affect, but I honestly don't see them as barriers today in my work at my company. And so I feel really lucky. Um, My boss is a fierce feminist himself. And so I feel really seen. I get to mentor a handful of women managers, up-and-comers in the engineering organization just because it's the right thing to do. And so also co-leading awesome women in engineering. So I really feel like I have a lot of voice and a lot of influence to try to make sure that we're getting to a place of equality in engineering at Yelp. I mean, that's, that's huge. That is such a big deal. Yeah, so it's hard to name what those challenges are. Evolving for me and growing for me 
you know, I continue to expand scope. Um, you rattle off in my bio, I have people technology, I have internal IT organization, technology sourcing, I have security engineering. It is such a breadth of work. I am constantly learning, and I'm so grateful to the people on our teams that continue to educate me so that we can get better at what we're doing, we can make Yelp more secure, we continue to offer the best in class, whether it's a laptop or a monitor or, or a mouse combination for all of our workers. You know, most of our folks now are completely remote, and so getting them the best equipment for them to work at home is really important. So I'm really, uh, I continue to be challenged with balancing all that work and being an empathetic leader. It's really important to me that folks know that I care about them. I do genuinely care about them. And so I, I hope they know that, that I will always try to be their best advocate. I ask a lot from folks. So when they ask me for something, I almost always try to say yes, because I know I ask a lot. I just love that. We need more leaders like you for sure, Tricia. We're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is April Rain. April Rain is the CEO of Rainstorm Ventures, where she advocated for the representation of marginalized communities in all areas of art and technology. She was also named Equity Advisor to Sephora in order to eliminate racial biases in stores and partnered with Overture Global to create digital content studio called Ensemble, which is aimed at creating content by and for people of color. Prior to all this, Rain worked as a campaign finance lawyer for 15 years, but had to resign from the FBC for violating the Hatch Act. She is most notable for creating the hashtag OscarsSoWhite in 2015, which called attention to the inequality at Hollywood and lack of representation of people of color in the 87th Academy Awards nominations. Since then, the Academy has aimed to double the number of women in underrepresented groups in what has predominantly been a white male-dominated industry. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, April Rain. innovators, we are back with Trisha Walsh talking about the power of mentorship and allyship, overcoming poverty, and looking for your destiny. So Trisha, you grew up in a town with less than 10,000 people, as we discussed earlier, and you consider yourself a small town girl at heart. How do these values currently play in your life? Right, right. I do. I do consider myself a small town girl at heart. I really like to know the people around me. So I know the neighbors. I know who lives across the street. I know who lives on the other side and all that. And I did that as a kid. I would often know all the folks around us and go introduce myself. I've been an extrovert for as long as I can remember. So I would just go say, hi, my name's Trisha. I live over there. You know? And so even at work today, I try to get to know as many people, particularly on the teams that I'm supporting, as much as I can. So I do skip level meetings. So I have uh, managers and directors that report to me and then the folks that report directly to them. I try to meet with everybody on some kind of regular cadence so that two things. One is I get to know them. I get to hear a little closer to the work that they're working on and the things they're accomplishing, as well as being available and accessible. Because if they ever need to escalate to me, I don't want that to be the first conversation that they have to say, hey, I need to talk to you, and there's this massive problem, and they have no idea who I am. So building those relationships feels like a small town kind of thing, that it just makes it easier that if push comes to shove, and I need them because I need an update on something, and their boss is out of town, we can have that conversation because it's not the first time we're having it. And the same is their ability to come to me if ever there's anything I can do to support them or fix something or escalate. I love that. Like I'm thinking about how, cause I grew up, I don't know how many people were in my town, but I'm a small town girl from New Mexico and <laughs> really like in the desert. And it got me thinking like, how do those values play out for myself? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to think about that. I definitely do love going to my neighbors. I bring them food all the time. They're kind of used to it by now. Actually, I've always just kind of 
connected with who my neighbors are of all ages. Actually, most of my neighbors are like 50s, 60s, even 70s. And I go and visit with Mm -hmm. them and hang out. So I I really love being a people's kind of gal. (laughs) So as part of the LGBTQ community, you also advocate for human rights and serve on the board for Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the taglines that the Ella Baker Center has used is books, not bars. And that was a purposeful program around helping to close as many juvenile detention facilities in California as they could. So really the idea of defunding fear and putting that money back into educational services in our communities. So it is a purposeful effort to refund our communities away from policing and incarceration and into education and equality. And it's been amazing to work with them. I'm so lucky that I found them and had a chance to get on the board of directors. They do amazing work. In the fall, they open up their parking lot and they have sourced a whole bunch of supplies and kids in their neighborhood in Oakland can come through and get a brand new backpack with notebooks and pencils and erasers and a calculator if they need it or whatever else. And so the idea being they get to go off to school and have everything they need to succeed at the start of the school year and just have that first chance to succeed that they may not have had because there wasn't any means in their house to get these things for them, for them to get ready for school. So it's things like that, like right in the community of trying to, to move resources to help folks avoid the injustice system of incarceration in this country. And again, touching on that theme of access to opportunity, just period and full stop. When you have access to opportunity, access to resources, access to funding, access to pathways, access to education, access to teachers. I mean, your life changes. You definitely shift the numbers through that. In this country, money is power. And for those of the folks that don't have money, they have no power. And so we are working really hard to shift that funding because a community feels more powerful when their schools are in good shape, when their kids are thriving, when they are healthy, because your zip code should not determine health outcomes. It just shouldn't. And we know that it does because trucks are allowed through one part of Oakland and not the other, other, right? Two highways, only one allows big trucks. And uh, it's not the richest neighborhoods. No, right? it's not. And so really trying to shift and put money back into the community, which gives them power to take care of themselves. That's all. You know, we're not trying to save people. We're just trying to refund so they can take care of themselves. I used to live in the East Bay for nine years, actually. So I lived in Fremont, which is not far from mm-hmm. Oakland. And I was, as being a mixed race I was hired by a grandmother to mentor her 13-year-old mixed-race granddaughter. And so I was scared. I'm not going to lie. Like, I was terrified because they lived in a scary part where I was like, oh my gosh, this is so different than going by like Lake Merritt or, you know, other areas of Oakland that are nicer. And one of the things that she communicated to me was, one, I was helping her study early for her SATs. She was only 13, but the grandmother was like, I want to start now because I want her to know, you know, she was hanging, she was already starting to hang around with a different kind of set. Her boyfriend was years older than her. She was just like, I need to get her a role model. And so I understood then, I think, how important it was to show up in these neighborhoods to support organizations that serve these communities. And like even through Wonder Woman Tech, we partner with other organizations. We give free scholarships and opportunities. We work with partners to provide free opportunities for education because it does. It changes the game when you have access to that. So thank you, Trisha, for showing up in that space. So where have you felt othered? I know you said that you don't experience that in your professional life, but where and when have you felt othered and how do you navigate through that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, as I was a younger person, I definitely felt 
ageism quite substantially. I'm not being taken seriously in my jobs. I worked at a supermarket in high school. I was in charge. I was in charge at the courtesy counter or whatever they called it. And, you know, I got berated by a customer that I couldn't possibly be in charge because I wasn't old enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just said it. He didn't, no bones about it. And now that I'm older and, you know, folks listening cannot see this, but I am mostly gray. I'm in my mid fifties, almost late fifties. And I'm starting to see not being heard in the world and being overlooked because of my hair color and my age. And, you know, I'm coming to the other side of ageism. And it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I don't quite, you know, and so if I don't feel heard, I just get louder. (laughs) So uh, I can't be ignored. You will Um, hear me. (laughs) You will hear me. You will see me. I'm only five feet three. So like, it's easy to overlook me for lots of reasons, but yeah, I will be heard. So that that's probably where I see othering. The other is the invisibility of being lesbian, you know, that folks make assumptions. I used to have really short hair. My hair now is down to the middle of my back. And this is started in COVID when I stopped getting a haircut. Mm. My hair was very short, so I was seen as butch. So it often presented that way, and it no longer presents that way. And that's been really weird for me um, (laughs) to have a long ponytail and be walking around in the world, but uh, be invisible as a lesbian. So I have to come out again and again and again. And some days that's exhausting. Oh, my gosh. I appreciate this conversation because, you know, for myself, I mean, I'm very much what people would call in the community a femme. I look straight. And my sexuality is evolving, actually. I was just thinking about at first when I came out, I came out 30. Then I was told by my first girlfriend who was 10 years older than me that I was a lesbian. But I was like, but I still like men. So I don't understand what that's about. So then I came out as bisexual. And now I'm exploring even pansexual or like fluid. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm still figuring out what these things are. And I was just asked myself a question like last week. I was like do I have to come out again for that? It's like, and even when I'm like dating men, then it's like my family are like, oh, God's heard our prayers. And I'm like, no, mom, I'm still like part of the community. Like that did not end. Yeah. And so there is this invisibility when you're not clearly defined even inside of the LGBTQ community. In fact, I I just lost a friend over this because Mm. she going back to allyship And terminology, she was like referring the D word around Mm -hmm. butch women, right? I don't even want to say it because I find it offensive, but it's an old terminology. And I'm like, you just can't use, you know, terminology. I am still part of the LGBTQ community, even if you don't see me. And so I identify with that, Trisha, because it is a, it sometimes feels exhausting for me that. 13, 14 years later, I'm still having to come out. I'm still having to advocate for who I am when I don't fit a box of, of, but you don't look gay or even in the community, like you don't look like a lesbian or you don't look by, you know what I mean? So I get that. And I often have asked myself, do I even have to like, like, I'm just going to just live. (laughs) I know. I know. And some days you don't want to, you don't want (laughs) to, but it's also, I feel really lucky, right? So I'm also really privileged to be in the United States. I am white. And so for me to assert and say I'm a lesbian, most people just stop talking. And, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm in a safer country than a lot of people, we, you know, that this last year has just been horrendous in our community, around our own country, but particularly around the world. And so I'm really grateful that I am, I am safely able to reassert that. And I'm really sorry about your friend. That is really too bad because this is really an opportunity for us to really embrace each other, right? And, and to love through these challenging times. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think we are in a very interesting space where the DEIB community is being obliterated and villainized to the point where I'm even having to redesign what I think the impact for Wonder Women Tech will be because I'm like, ah, now DEI is bad. Now I have to mask it underneath more terminology that people cannot feel threatened by, if you will. 
Right. And, you know, one of the things that this person had said to me when I kind of did try to tell her about allyship and here's how to talk about this. She said, I just had concerns that you would be political about this. And I'm like, this isn't about politics. <laughs> I think we've forgotten that that human rights and politics are two different things. Common decency right. and human dignity and politics are two different things. Doing yes. the right thing by your fellow human and politics are two different things. And unfortunately, politics has crossed this divide in ev everything in the tech industry. It's now become political, right? And it shouldn't be. In leadership, it's now political. Any kind of training, your allyship workshops is political. I mean, it becomes weaponized in that way. And it's, right. I feel like it's just such an unfortunate right. thing. Well, people looking for weapons will weaponize anything, right, as an attempt to use it against you. And so it's just, it's such a shame because where's the value of human dignity? Because if we talk about just human dignity, that means safety and wellness and eating and health care. Um, and none of that should be political. I'm, I'm absolutely right there with you. And to see, you know, words that we using around inclusion, being weaponized, just so painful. Yeah. So painful. She told me I was too woke. So I was just like, what even is that? But, you know, like, I think, like, for those of us that are advocates like yourself, that are activists and leaders, you know, I think we just have to be diligent in how we continue to just make movement, make movement happen. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And an organization like yours is just amazing. Giving voice to this, giving a platform for us to talk about things and continue to have these conversations. And language is evolving, right? It absolutely is. Words that I would use 20 years ago to describe myself are words you just referenced that are offensive. So I don't use those words anymore, but we are constantly evolving. And that feels so much more important than any of the right words is that we evolve in this way together. And I'm so grateful for the, for the young folks that are coming along and really challenging the ways we've done things and asked us to think about it differently. And I'm so grateful. Yeah, you know, speaking of evolving, you love seeking opportunities to acquire new skills. So what is something you have recently acquired or learned? That is a great question. One of the things I've definitely need to learn and I have not acquired it, I am learning it, and that is timely feedback for folks. I am really good at saying, you did a really great job, thank you so much, this and that, but that's not specific enough. So being able to give folks that are on my team specific, observable feedback, like, I was in that meeting with you, and when you brought up that point about this part of the initiative or that part of the project, I could really see it land with the audience, you really got their attention there. That was really well done. So being really specific so they know what things are really working in their lives and their jobs. And so I'm evolving and I'm learning, but really helping folks to see their own talents in very specific ways. That is something I definitely want to pick up as well. That, I, cause I do, I'm always like, oh my God, you're a rock star. You did fantastic. Very, very much gushy about that, but being specific, timely feedback. I love that. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sit with that. <laughs> so, you know, in this journey of being planted seeds, going after it, learning, evolving, trying on this hat, that hat, has there ever been a moment where you just wanted to give up? Yes. So this is going to be a little bit of a story, so bear with me. So when I was 17, my twin brother died as a result of a car accident. And another of my brothers was driving. They had been out all night, so there was a lot of alcohol involved. And in my family, there had always been a lot of alcohol. And all the adults in our lives drove, no matter what condition they were in. So I don't blame my brother. We all thought we could drive like that. We didn't know there were consequences. And for years after the death of my brother, you know, just like in high school, I didn't know how to ask for help. 
I didn't know how to ask for help around the death of my brother either. And I didn't know how to talk about grief. I had no words for it, just a lot of pain. And as I went through my 20s, this really started to rear its ugly head. And so when I was in relationships, when they would break up, all of my grief came, all of it. And um, I was suicidal. I um, was hospitalized a number of times um, for that. And I'm sober today. I haven't had a drink or a drug in 22 years. That uh, I only take the drugs that are prescribed to me by a physician as prescribed. And the other part of that is my mental health and really working through grief and post-grief depression and trying to find a way to make peace with myself, with my family, particularly around my brother. And so there were moments that I wanted to give up and there were moments when I could not see a way forward. I'm really, really lucky that I was able to find help and get help and that has been through 12-step programs, that has been through therapy, that has been through psychiatry. I'm really grateful. It has been an entire village of support that has helped me get better. I do consider myself in recovery from both my addiction as well as mental health, but they are both two diseases that I need to keep an eye on. I have symptoms of those diseases, and I need to work on those symptoms when I see them. When COVID first happened, I had talked about being an extrovert, and we all started working from home. I went back into therapy because I was lonely in a way that I hadn't been in a really long time. And just riding the bus every day and going into the office in the city, I didn't work with everyone around me, but I worked with some of them. And that fed me. That fed my energy. It fed my human side. And when I started working in this room with these walls and my eyes and this computer, and that was it. I found I needed help. I needed help to work through that. And it was about loneliness and just feeling. I didn't know how I felt about it. Um, and so I'm so grateful that when I see symptoms of things like that, I go get help and I speak up. And so for me, it's been about telling my story, being honest and vulnerable with how awful it had been. And that is what has helped me get better. I see that really brought something up for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really just grateful that you were that open okay. in sharing. And it's super, uh, oh my gosh, it's, it really normalizes what so many, well, I'm going to say what I felt as a leader, you know, especially during the pandemic where I was the most alone I've ever felt in my entire life. And I was tasked with having to reimagine what, what a women's tech looked like because live events was gone. Everything was gone. My entire livelihood was gone. I actually, Trisha, had to go back on food stamps for a little bit. The most humiliating experience I've ever had. Okay. And I even, I mean, I even put myself on Twitter to be like, does anyone have like a job for me, like something I can do while I'm rebuilding and no one bit like it was just, it was weird. I felt like I was asking for help everywhere mm -hmm. in the most humiliating ways for my family. I, I live out here in California by myself. Everybody else lives somewhere else and people didn't understand. And then we lost our social media director, a close friend of mine to cancer. Mm -hmm. And I understood grief for the first time in this deep, dark way. And so it was, it was interesting. I also reached a dark place and mm -hmm. I, you know, what hit me hard was like recently I've kind of been villainized for even talking about having felt suicidal before. Being vulnerable with my team was probably what saved me. But then mm -hmm. I've also been criticized for being vulnerable with my team. You know, like, it's just like this, yep. this weird thing where you're like, when you do, when there is mental health involved, when there is like, I went into a depression, I was dealing with grief. 
I didn't know. I mean, on multiple levels, my, my therapist called it compound grief, mm-hmm. compound depression, because it was one thing after the, I was in a car accident during the pandemic. Mm. I couldn't walk for five months. I'm in these four walls. It was the darkest of times. I barely have come out of that mm-hmm. only to meet some other things that kind of hit me where I'm at this place, you know, asking you the question. I, I sat for a moment and I'm like, I feel like I'm there now. I want to give up now. I mean, Wonder Women Tech is going to be 10 years next year. And just this morning I was telling somebody I'm tired. I'm exhausted yeah. because, yeah. you know, you go spend, I spent four years trying to get out of this pandemic funk and out of the depression, which I am. I have a therapist. I've just, talk to my doctor about managing anxiety because I have, I've had anxiety disorders since I was little. It's been gone. It's been gone. Now it's back all of a sudden. So I got to stay on top of it. And as you mentioned, you know, when you start to see symptoms of when you're not okay and it's okay to not be okay. Trisha, like I finally actually feel that even in spite of hearing people kind of talking behind my back about, can you believe she said this? And she, you know, she's too vulnerable and she shouldn't be telling people this. And I'm like, but if I didn't tell people this, I don't think I would still be here today. That's just the reality of it. Like, it's because I was keeping everything bottled in that I even got to the darkest of places that I got to two marches ago. So I was full of emotion because It was gratitude, really, to know that you can speak openly about what this looks like, be in leadership for a Fortune 500 company, and not feel shame. Because I grapple with the shame of that. So thank you. Yep. And the shame is compounding. That's also compounding and keeping us quiet and keeping us silent and not getting the help we need when we need it. So it's so important. Thank you so much. And as you can see, you know, at Wonder Women Tech, being vulnerable is an invaluable strength to have and lead with. It's so much a part of my ethos now Mm -hmm. that this is a question I ask every podcast episode. In being vulnerable, I ask, you know, if you can share something with us that you've never shared before. Yeah, it's so powerful. It also creates a real connection, an actual connection with another human being, which I didn't appreciate about myself. I actually didn't want it to be true, but I actually need other people and I need to be connected to them to feel grounded. And so I'm really grateful for you. I'm really grateful that you came forward. It's really courageous to have your feelings in front of someone else. It's another way of coming out, to be honest, like that there is a stigma centered around mental health. And I don't want it to be a situation where it's too late. Like in the case of celebrities that we just went through a string of celebrities, right? And when Twitch passed away, I had a dialogue with my dad and my dad said, I was suicidal too. Like he said, Mm -hmm. I, he would have never came out if he didn't see representation of a strong black man, quote unquote, succumbing. And my dad, for the first time ever, just told me this. And now I check on him regularly. Now I understand the assignment that I need to show up for my dad. And that is where I look to, you know, like it's important even as leaders to say, we don't have all the answers. We don't always know what we're doing. We are human. And I think that as leaders, I've certainly seen this in my own (laughs) I feel like I was the worst leader, quote unquote, during this, like the last few years, especially the last two years that I've ever been in my entire life because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was also dealing with grief and depression and uncertainty and physical, like literally getting through a car accident and loneliness. I didn't even know loneliness was a thing until I was like literally (laughs) alone. So Thank you for giving me the space to to share on your platform this episode. But I do think it's important. I do think that people should give themselves grace. We all have collectively gone through trauma. I was just talking to my sister about this yesterday because she was like kind of also unraveling a little bit. We're all, I think, 
the shock is worn off and now we have to sit Mm -hmm. with our feelings and we have to operate. I'm a person that needs people too. So this remote environment, actually, I don't love it. I'm one of the people, I don't love it. It's not my favorite. I don't know how sustainable it is for me. I don't know that I can stay remote in my environment. Personally, I can't. I don't know that I can. It's making me go crazy. (laughs) So, you know, I hope there's ways that we can create more meaningful experiences with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, when I look back at my 20s when I was really struggling, nobody was talking about this out loud. You know, and if you hear moms today talking, no one was talking about miscarriage in the same way. And so finding out that it's like one in five pregnancies or whatever that statistic is, like that's an awful lot of people not talking about it. And so the same is true with these struggles is I didn't see anyone else talking about it. It certainly didn't tell me that I could talk about it. So I didn't. And it was literally killing me. And I'm so grateful to have a chance to tell it so that the next person can hear you and I are having these struggles and finding a way together forward. What we need as individuals isn't the same cookie cutter approach for you and me and someone else, but trying to find our own way with what wellness looks like and what practices we put in our lives to make that happen. For me, it's walking. I have to get up out of this chair and go outside and walk at least twice a day. And my day is completely different when I do that than when I don't. For me, it's Disneyland. So in fact, I'm going after this episode. I'm going. Um, I go every week, sometimes multiple times a week because it is my balance. It's like I will give up my phone bill to pay my Disney bill. Like (laughs) it's it's like that important to me now. Like people are like, you're always going to Disneyland. And part of it does come from that poverty. I didn't could only dream of doing something like that as a child. And then part of it is this sense of joy and like excitement. And I, and then of course I'm walking too. Like I'm walking 20,000 steps every time I go to Disneyland. Right. So I get it. You have to, I like now balance is non-negotiable for me. Wellness is non-negotiable for me. And I've given myself permission that it's okay to pause even for four weeks, like pause. There is nothing as important as what you thought was important to you. Even career wise, there's nothing as important as your mental and physical well-being. So, and emotional well-being. So thank you, Trisha, so much. Thank you. And I'm sure that this conversation is going to help, you know, a lot of people who will listen in on this and people can relate and just know the power of professional support therapy is vital. You're not required Mm -hmm. to do this alone. In fact, you're not supposed to do this alone. So I would suggest anyone who is listening and can identify and doesn't have professional help, please seek it. It's life-changing. It's life-supporting. It's vital. We see you and we appreciate you. And please reach out if you need support. But Trisha, you know, I have really appreciated getting to know you. You came from a town with... That is just a little over double the size of the company you work for now. You've definitely come a long way. So if you had to do it over again, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? I would take the road less traveled. And the reason is the lessons I've learned along the way have been paramount to who I've become. Not just who I was, but who I've become and becoming. I'm not done. I'm going to continue to evolve for as long as I you know, can breathe. And I'm so grateful for the people and the journey along the way, even though they were hard. And hopefully, you know, in a conversation like this, Lisa May, we get to share our own journey with other people. And maybe they don't have to take quite the hard road that we did in certain passes. But I'm, I'm grateful for all the people along my journey uh, that helped me get here. And made it just a little easy, right? Right. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Trisha. It has been a very impactful conversation. I have several things to reflect on, actually, from the tools you shared earlier in our conversation to how I can be a better leader and a better ally. 
And of course, you know, how I can continue to advocate for my mental health and give myself permission to be human in every aspect Mm -hmm. and vulnerable Mm -hmm. in the process. So thank you, Trisha. Yeah, thank you. This is a great conversation. I'm really grateful to you to bring the voice of women in STEM out for those that want to find us and learn more about us and realize that not all paths are linear. They can take all kinds of curves and we can still be working in incredible technology jobs in today's industries. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you evolve in your leadership. Thank you so much for being here, innovators. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.